You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In several ways, Samuel Beckett's 20th century play, Waiting for Godot, can be read as an anti-Advent story. Hinted at in the title of the play, it can be read as a not-so-subtle critique for those who set their hope in a transcendent power, a jab at those who are waiting for God. The play concludes pointedly with the characters still waiting and now, in fact, contemplating suicide. Godot, or God, never arrives, nor is he expected to. Those who wait, wait in vain. Beyond waiting in vain, Beckett's characters, Vladimir and Estrogen, those who wait are portrayed in totally passive terms. Their waiting is inactive. They're motionless, inert. One theater critic has commented that the play is one in which absolutely nothing happens. You thought Seinfeld invented that. That portrait of passive waiting sits in contrast with what the Bible describes about our waiting, with what the biblical witness suggests is the kind of waiting we're called to in the season of Advent, where the characters in the play in Waiting for Godot are motionless and inert, though waiting to which the followers of Jesus are called is an active sort of waiting. The phrase looking forward used in our reading from 2 Peter suggests this, not lethargically biding time, but with expectation, anticipating, even participating in the arrival for which we wait, hastening its coming. Mother Sarah's message last week touched on this active quality in the waiting of Advent. She named four different actions that characterize the people of Advent. They confess their sins, they pray boldly, they invite upheaval, and they keep watch. This morning, I would like to add one more element to what it is that the people of Advent do, in line with our readings today. And that is that the people of Advent, in their waiting, proclaim. They announce. They announce the goodness of the one for whom they wait. They proclaim the excellencies of the one whom we expect. They share the good news. In our Old Testament and gospel readings this morning, God's arrival is connected to a message, a a message of preparedness. Prior to the coming of Israel's God, news of his arrival is sent forward. Here is your God. Prior to Jesus' arrival in Mark, John the Baptist proclaims this message of baptism for repentance, of forgiveness for sins. Both of these announcements, the delivery of these messages, are characterized as making straight the way of the Lord, preparing the way. This period of waiting for the Lord is to be marked by relaying this message of preparedness. Think of classic songs like Curtis Mayfield's People Get Ready or Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. These songs announce a hoped-for reality, a longed-after future existence, and they're proclaiming its certainty, a change will come. And they are inviting participation and alignment with that reality. These songs, they have an evangelistic quality. As the people of Advent, our waiting is characterized, is to be characterized 
by a similar sort of proclamation. Now, I just used the E word there, evangelism. And many of us hear that word and perhaps have an immediate reaction. It comes with baggage, with paternalistic or imperialistic undertones, with the idea of high pressure or manipulative tactics or guilt. And we perhaps feel an aversion to the very idea of announcement, of proclamation, a reticence around the very idea of sharing news of Jesus and his coming. Another play turned into a movie from the 1990s was Glengarry Glen Ross. And there's this famous moment where the character played by Alec Baldwin has to give kind of a, a rally those troops kind of speech to this group of downtrodden salesmen. And he says, remember ABC, always be closing. And then he tells them, he says, first prize in this next uh, sales period is you win a Cadillac. Second prize is you get steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. <laughs> it's not exactly an effective motivational tool. But that is how some of us, I think, feel about the idea of proclamation, the idea of evangelism, like you are being pressured into doing something that you are ill-equipped to do, something seedy, potentially unethical, and definitely unwelcome, right? Like, no one wants these guys to call them on the phone. But what I'd like to do in these next few moments this morning are consider this idea of proclamation, is consider this idea of proclamation in light of our readings today and hopefully provide something of a vision along with a few specific steps that might make it seem both actually inviting, like a good to participate in, and something attainable. My hope is that we emerge in these next few minutes with a picture of proclamation that is both inviting and plausible, that it is a life-giving part of our waiting this Advent and in all seasons. And this is our focus this morning, both because the texts of Scripture that have been given to us for this day in the church's lectionary point us toward it, and also because I think there's a particular invitation, a call for us as a church to grow in understanding and participation in proclamation of the gospel. Whatever our background, whatever our founded, well-founded misgivings, if the good news about Jesus Christ is what we weakly declare it to be to one another, if we say, if it actually is the, the gospel of the Lord, as we say each week, news of salvation and reconciliation, news of a good kingdom coming in certainty that you can enter into through faith of Jesus, if it's all that, then we have a moral obligation to make it known to others, because it is remarkable good news. Yesterday, I didn't wait two minutes to tell my son, who is a Dodgers fan, that Shohei Otani had signed with the Dodgers. It was good news. I called him on the phone. My son is 10. I was like, to my wife, give him the phone. I have something to tell him. And he was ecstatic. If it is good news, it should be shared that others might taste and see in Christ that the Lord is good. 20th century missionary Leslie Newbegin writes that the church needs to facilitate what he describes as a missionary encounter with the world around it. And as he puts it, this requires two elements, two steps. First, a recognition that the church is distinct from the world, from the cultures around it. 
in the language of Advent, that the church is waiting in hope and expectation for something outside the world, outside the culture. That the church is not oriented toward whatever ends or goals the surrounding culture might have. While all the world is already celebrating Christmas, the church is in the quiet and solemn season of Advent, acknowledging that we're citizens of another kingdom, waiting for someone who is yet to reveal himself finally, fully. That's the first element that makes a missionary encounter possible, distinction. But the second element Newbegin identified was a posture of being for the world, for the culture that the church is distinct from. Without assimilation, without unreserved affirmation, the church is to be for the culture, for the world around it. To be for our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, our family, our enemies. To be the people who together take on the posture like we see John the Baptist take, pointing to Jesus. Not pointing to ourselves, but pointing to him who's worthy, worthy of the attention of the world, worthy of waiting for. For the sake of love, sake of care for our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our city, our nation. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah. And chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah is this pivotal chapter. It represents a shift in tone and and seemingly in context, drastic enough that some scholars have suggested that from Isaiah 40 to the end of the book is actually this second separate work. They call it Second Isaiah, not particularly imaginative title. In chapter 40 and in the subsequent chapters, there's a shift in focus from judgment and wrath upon Israel to an emphasis on their unique position as God's people and in the world, bearing witness to him. It's where you get the image of the suffering servant, which speaks of Jesus, but also describes the people of God. Distinct, distinctly known and related to God, called to point to him in their service. Called to participate in making God's power and goodness known to the nations. One theologian from South Africa writes that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, God is the missionary, but Israel and the people of God are called to participate in that work. That's what we see in Isaiah 40. And we see that that message, that proclamation, the people of God are called to carry forward is a word of comfort, a word to be spoken tenderly, a message of consolation. For many of us, this connection between comfort and consolation and and proclamation or evangelism has been severed. When the gospel is understood to be merely an obligation or a message to submit to, something is lost. But Isaiah 40 depicts God himself in plaintive terms, desiring that his people would be consoled, that they would hear good news, a reassuring message that they would receive it tenderly. Our reading from 2 Peter puts the the waiting we are uh, enabling, embodying this season of Advent, the waiting of God's people in the context of God's patience, his long-suffering desire that all would be comforted, that all would be saved. That is God's desire for his people and through his people His desire for the nations, for your neighbors, for your friends, your colleagues, for your enemies. God's love is not reserved for Christians. 
God's love is no less for those who are outside the walls of the church. His desire is that none should perish, but that all would know the comfort, the consolation of his gospel, would anticipate and welcome his coming in goodness, in righteousness, in justice. That's the message that the prophets conscripted to share in Isaiah 40. That's the good news we're called to share. A message of good news, a comforting word for Jerusalem, but for the, through the people of God, for the nations, for the people around you. Henry David Thoreau famously observed that the mass of human beings lead lives of quiet desperation. That is, they are in need of comfort, in need of consolation, desperate for good news. We live in a time where people are coming to the end of their hope, seeing the world as a chaotic, discordant place where the the stories they have trusted politically, the stories they've trusted economically, the narratives that have animated life are proving themselves to be bankrupt. They are desiring, desperate for a story that is worthy of their time, their lives, desperate for something or someone who is worth the wait. How might viewing the gospel as a message of comfort to be spoken tenderly change our understanding of the work of proclamation while we wait? I have some thoughts that I'll share at the end, but I want to pose it to you now. For your own reflection, may the Spirit inspire and guide us as we seek a missionary encounter with those around us. A second feature regarding this proclamation, this message of preparedness in Isaiah, is that while it is a message of comfort to be spoken tenderly, it's not comfort, perhaps, on our own terms. I'm getting older. Some of you have noticed, I'm sure. So are you. How's that going? For me, it has ups and downs. Not too long ago, I had to go to the doctor because of tennis elbow, dealing with tendonitis in my arm. I don't play tennis. It's a misnomer. For me, it's just getting old elbow. But before going to the doctor, I heard from a friend who had gone to their physician for the same problem, and they had received a steroid shot that cleared the whole thing up. One shot, a quick fix solution. That was the comfort that I was seeking. I was disheartened, however, when I got to the doctor to hear that steroid shots are generally no longer recommended. Rather, the suggested treatment involves ongoing physical therapy and disciplined exercise. That was not the comfort I was seeking. But the fact of the matter is that for very good reasons, the doctor offered this particular path toward wholeness, this path of consolation. Whatever I desire, that is the path toward healing. A similar delta between our expectation and what is actually true might unfold as we unpack the message of preparedness and comfort outlined in Isaiah 40. A similar distance between the message we would convey or anticipate others would like to hear and what is on offer, what is prescribed. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. The sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward and recompense are with him. People are like grass. Some of that message 
is at the very least an affront. It does not sit well. It speaks of a pathway toward consolation, towards salvation that involves the surrender of our autonomy, the acknowledgement of our lack, a recognition of guilt. What does it mean to say, here is your God, to a person, to a people who are unsure that they want one? The prophet in Isaiah 40 has to be told, do not be afraid for a reason. John the Baptist's announcement about the forgiveness of sin was a balm to many, a consolation, a blessing, but it was not received by all, especially those who were invested in the status quo. Now, on this point, we have to recognize the church has sometimes itself not articulated the message of the gospel in ways that are comforting, that are a blessing. We have an example of that in actually our reading from 2 Peter. 2 Peter verse 10 has this language about the world burning up. And for literally hundreds of years, that expression was understood to be this condemning thing. And it's only been in more recent times that it's been uncovered that actually that word has connotations of renewal, of restoration, of refining. That the intention there is not that God wants to make everything burn in anger, but to see things renewed and purified and made whole. The news has often been better than the church has had the courage or has the wisdom to articulate. The gospel has often been better than what we've expressed. So the news that Jesus is a friend who will stick with you, that you are made in the image of God, that something glorious and good, making sense of your desires, that is all good news. The church needs to express that is welcome. And the church needs to get better at articulating it. We are called to be better at articulating it. But I cannot get around this problem for you. That the season of Advent involves a recognition that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a person out of step. Times in which we live. Every age, whatever age. And that the church is a people who are a people out of time. Who are citizens of this eternal kingdom. Looking forward to the day of God. And so no amount of finesse, no amount of cultural savvy can overcome this reality. We're a people out of time, and the message of preparedness that is a comfort does not come on our own terms. As such, it will at some points be unpalpable. It will be unwelcome to some degree to some people. In an article written in 1974, the Dutch theologian William Hoof wrote, evangelism is not adequately described as answering the questions that human beings are asking, however deep those questions might be. Because evangelism is in the first place the transmission of God's question to human beings. And that question is and remains whether we are willing to accept Jesus as the one and only Lord of life. He goes on to argue that we must relate that question, God's question about Jesus being Lord, to the questions, the existential questions people are asking, such that it would be seen that in answering God's question, receiving Jesus as Lord, our deepest concerns, we understand, are met. But the confrontational nature of that question still stands. An encounter with Jesus as the Lord of life that prompts this binary decision, acceptance or rejection. 
an offer of comfort and consolation, but not on our own terms. What does it mean to say this is the Lord of life when we're unsure that we want a Lord? Another question for your consideration, your reflection. But as we close uh, with a couple of thoughts and more than that, a couple of steps, I want to invite you to consider these steps in your life to facilitate missionary encounter, to live out the active call to proclaim. So four steps. First, pray. These things, the work of evangelism, this being distinct from the world, but for it, the proclamation of a message of comfort that is not on our own terms, it's all too much for us. We're not sufficient for this work. But God is the missionary. And like the prophet in Isaiah, we are called to participate in his work, the work that he is faithfully completing. And the biblical witness is that God is revealing his glory, even now in real time, that daily creation is speaking of his goodness and power, and that a day is coming when all will see Jesus in his goodness, in his radiance. The biblical witness is that the Holy Spirit is now alive in the world, opening hearts and minds to these truths. If you are unconvinced of that or have not heard stories of that, check it out. Check out the Veritas Forum, just as one. Find on the Veritas Forum, there are examples of people, people that you would not expect encountering Jesus in remarkable ways, mostly at university campuses, because that's what Veritas is about. But these are stories of Jesus finding and meeting people, empowering witnesses, empowering people to speak of him to others. You are not without resources in the work to which we are called. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to be a witness. Pray for invitations to join in the conversations that the Spirit is now having with your neighbors, your colleagues, your family members and friends. Pray for yourself to have vision and heart in line with God's purposes. I have felt convicted about this over the last few months. When I'm at HEB, when I'm with my son's baseball team, I have begun to feel prompted to pray, God, I don't think I see these people the way you see them. I see them as competitors for a parking spot or tools for my son's burgeoning athletic career. But you see them as people who are dearly loved, who are worthy of knowing the goodness of Jesus. Pray that our hearts would be changed. Pray for these people. Our church has just recently been invited to a diocesan effort, along with a couple of other churches, to encourage this kind of prayer for people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. We'll be talking about it, I'm sure, in the weeks and months to come in a grassroots kind of way. If you're interested in participating, let me know. But you could start now. The ask is simply, daily pray for two people in your life by name who do not know Jesus and see what the Lord might do. So the first is pray. The second step is live out of time. In our reading from 2 Peter, the people of God are exhorted to live holy and godly lives as ones looking forward to a new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. The invitation is to live as though righteousness matters. 
Live as though the kingdom is real. Live as though a just and good judge is coming. Live this distinct life. We do this for two reasons. Personal renewal is the beginning of corporate revival. You cannot sell people on something you yourself do not believe and practice. That's what Glengarry and Glen Ross is about, that kind of salesmanship. If we are to commend Jesus as Lord, we must know him as Lord, to live as though holiness and his kingdom matter definitively. The second reason is that such a life provokes a question. I was thinking about that funny moment in that movie, The Blades of Glory with Will Ferrell, where he says, it's provocative. We live this way because it provokes a question. What are you living for? Why did you make that decision? Why do you treat people in that fashion? Oxford-trained historian Sarah Williams in her book, The Shaming of the Strong, which is a story of carrying her daughter Syrian to full term, even knowing there was a less than 1% chance of Syrian survival because of a genetic abnormality. She chose to carry this baby, give birth to her daughter Syrian. And the shaming of the strong tells the story of that decision. And one of the things she notes is how that decision and walking through with it prompted countless conversations in the context of Britain's National Health Service with doctors, with nurses, with other professors about why it is that Sarah and her husband Paul chose to do this. You treat people differently is one of the things that was commented. You have a different vision of the human person. That is living out of time, living out of step, prompting the question. So the first is pray, second is live out of time, and the third is be a friend. You may feel ill-equipped to offer a persuasive account of what Jesus is Lord, unprepared for philosophical debate, but that is not what participation in the mission of God may require of you. You are equipped to be a friend. If Thoreau's quote about quiet desperation is true, and I think it is, what people do not actually need is sophisticated philosophical argumentation or slick salesmanship. They're not going to share that reality with people who are the best arguers or the people who are the best presenters. That reality will be shared, however, with caring friends. What people need are those who are warm and accepting, people to whom they can entrust themselves, people who are for them and for their flourishing. The simplest way we as a church can facilitate New Begin's missionary encounter is to be devoted to Jesus and a faithful friend to those who do not yet know him. Mission happens when the friends of Jesus are friends to others who are ready with a message of comfort in the name of Jesus. Whenever that moment might arise, I will pray for you. Can I share this with a group of friends from church? Can we bring you a meal? Can the church bless you financially in this time of need? You and I, we can be friends. The final thing I want to encourage you to ward does require a little bit of boldness, and that is to extend an invitation. As you're praying, living with Jesus as Lord, being a friend, extend an invitation. Extend an invitation to a low-bar church event, a chili cook-off or Christmas Eve service. You will be surprised. Invite someone to read something together. 
Invite them to a deeper level of conversation. What is your spiritual background? What is it that you're hoping for out of life? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Those kind of questions are themselves an invitation to a deeper relationship. One basic invitation you might consider is to something we are piloting here in the new year. We did this years ago, and we're going to do it again, and it's called the Alpha Course. Some of you might know about this, but Alpha is this basic opportunity for the church to show hospitality and create space for people from whatever background to discuss and grapple with questions related to meaning, hope, purpose, and love in life. Rather than a hard sell, it is an opportunity the church has to facilitate a positive encounter with Jesus. This coming January, we'll we'll pilot this very small group, but we hope it will build from there in the seasons to come. We'll communicate more about it in the weeks to come. But pray, pray and consider your participation. We're extending an invite to someone whom you know. It is the season of Advent, a season of waiting. But it is active waiting. And in our waiting for Jesus and the fullness of his kingdom, let us be a people in the lineage of the prophet Isaiah and John the Baptist and countless others. Let us be a people who point to Jesus and the coming goodness of his reign. Let's point to him as someone who's worth the wait. Let's do so among our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, among people who are hungry, desiring, and worthy of something to wait for. Let's do so as an act of obedience, as an act of true care. Lift up your voice. Do not be afraid. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.